This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Gengioko Rinsho, Tim Wicks, and I'm a priest up at San Francisco Zen Center at City Center. Gengioko means dark jewel, and Rinsho means turning towards the light, a reference to my dark and sordid past. Um, sorry, I'm running just sort of a little late. Uh, there was a uh, bicycle accident on the way over here. And my uh, partner is a nurse, so she had to make sure that everyone was okay, and they were. Hope no one was uh, too stressed out about the speaker not showing up. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank Michael for extending an invitation to me. Thank you very much. I love coming down here. I've been down here several times. Uh, the first time that I was here, Doug Jacobson is not here, is he? I don't see him. I don't feel him. Yeah. Uh, the first time I was here was for his ordination. It was raining dramatically, uh, his, his priest ordination. And uh, I was enchanted then and have been in the several times that I've been back here. Um, uh, it's just so beautiful. We're so lucky. First of all, to be alive. <laughs> And uh, I'd like you to, if you can, actually, sort of along those lines, um, try to imagine briefly, you can close your eyes if you want, but you don't have to. This land, uh, before there were any Europeans here, before there were any buildings here, before Europeans came here. And imagine those people the native people who were here, who looked off to this land for many thousands of years when these were just windswept hills. The Ohlone and the Miwok and the Esalen cross paths over thousands of years here on this land. I would like to acknowledge them and bring them into this room. And by using our imaginations in this way, we are able to connect with the first people who were here. And uh, who looked off to this land before we, we brought and placed our karmic energy on this land. And as we're able to connect with them through space and through time, our hearts are able to begin to open. And so this is something that's following on from our imagination. Is actually, our imagination happens in our bodies and we're able to begin this process of opening up our hearts. So uh, the title of this talk is uh, The Ugly Stitch. It's true that uh, I'm a sewing teacher 
and um, it, it, it's listed on here, activities at Jikoji on Sundays, and it lists um, walking, socializing, relaxing, classes, sewing, and work projects, <laughs> which if you didn't know what our relationship with sewing is, would look kind of a little bit strange right there. <laughs> but for those of you who don't know, we sew, we sew our own robes, these robes that we wear. Uh, and uh, Ross and Michael have on smaller robes. Is this, am I doing everything okay with this? I don't need to worry about it, okay? It keeps changing sound, so. Uh, uh, these are called rakasus, and um, we, we've just uh, finished a, uh, and, and then I have a large one on, uh, which is called an okesa. And uh, we just had a three-day sewing retreat at City Center where a bunch of people were coming and, and sewing, uh, came and, and sewed. And we have got a very special way uh, that was brought from um, Japan uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Um, we have uh, a special way of sewing it. It's been sewn this, this way for uh, many hundreds, and actually these large ones uh, since the time of the Buddha have been sewn. Um, and so that retreat just ended last night. It's a very intense, wonderful thing to do, <laughs> sit and sew. Uh, and we take refuge with each stitch. Uh, it's just a beautiful, very intense and exhausting thing to do. Um, and uh, the, these are, the, the little ones, sometimes people think that they're sort of baby robes or uh, symbolic robes or... Uh, not somehow real robes. And these are more real, but these are just still symbolic of the Buddha's robe. But uh, uh, Mel Weitzman is the abbot of uh, uh, Berkeley Zen Center. And I heard him once. He's one of the most senior ones. He was a direct student of Suzuki Roshi's, uh, who founded San Francisco Zen Center. And, and I heard him once say, that the, the, these are not imitation or symbolic robes they're actually it actually is buddha's robe and i remember when i first heard that i thought oh, you know come on mel i thought quietly to myself i didn't say anything <laughs> it's not really buddha's robe buddha's been dead for a really long time and uh you know this fabric was was uh recently woven uh but then i started to think using once again my imagination which reb was asking me to do by making this statement and then not explaining it at all, uh, that someone has been sewing Buddha's robe since the time of the Buddha for the last 2,500 years. I had already sewn my blue rakasu, so I knew a little bit of the power of actually making this robe. Um, and I, I knew just enough to know that somewhere, every single moment, someone was making continuously uh, Buddha's robe. Even at times when, one of the reasons why we think that th this is a five row uh, robe, I hope you don't mind me using you as a model, okay? Uh, and, uh, and then this is a uh, um, uh, seven joe, seven robes, or seven rows. And then there's another one, do you have a nine joe? And there's a ni the nine joe that transmitted uh, monks have, like Michael has a, a nine joe, uh, which has got nine, nine rows on it. And uh, s some people think that these five joes, 
five rows, they were worn originally as a skirt. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, originally the uh, Buddhists walked around and begged alms, uh, and that's how they survived. But when Buddhism moved to uh, China, that was not really socially acceptable. You shouldn't beg for your food in, in, in many parts of, of China, and you needed to work for it. So that meant working in a field. And that was really when work and labor uh, and soji uh, uh, cleaning up became a part of our practice. And, and so monks uh, and the, monast the new monastery system started, started um, making their own food. And uh, it's my understanding, I've been told, that working in a field is very difficult with a skirt on. So uh, that's possibly one of the reasons why uh, the robes uh, became uh, small like that. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's been, in fact, I'm, I'm positive that there's been this unbroken line of uh, the making of Buddha's robes since the time of the Buddha. And once I started to practice with that idea, I started to realize, well, is it possible? Can I entertain the idea that this really is Buddha's robe? And um, I have no doubt right now that it really is after practicing this way for, you know, over... 10 years, 15 years nearly, uh, that I've been around and, and, and uh, falling into this sewing practice, this crazy, wacky thing that we do. Um, so uh, it's called uh, the robe of freedom. It's the, the robe of freedom from birth and death. <laughs> and it really is. <laughs> It's the robe of enlightenment. It's uh, a banner. It's a flag. It's sort of a signpost uh, for when people see us wearing it. Uh, uh, it's a sign for them to come and speak about the Dharma with us. Come and practice with us this way of living. It is also, and I'm going to quote from the Chant of the Okesa, which... Um, I'm pretty sure it's from the, uh, um, the Flower Garland Sutra. I'm still kind of looking for it. The <laughs> uh, Avatamsaka Sutra, for those of you who don't know, is like a really thick sutra. Um, but we've been using this at Tassahara, uh, the Zen Center's monastery uh, inland from here, um, at, to open up our, our sewing classes. And um, Someone recently asked me, well, where is it from? And I, I'm pretty sure it's from the Avatamsaka Sutra. But anyway, uh, so we open our, our sewing classes with this at, at Tassahara. The Dharma robe provides modesty. It completes repentance and creates the rice field of happiness. It's modeled on the rice fields. Just like rice fields are on, on inclines, the water flows down and out and makes the rice, we eat the rice, and then become sustained in such a way that we can begin to study the Dharma. And we say the Dharma flows down and out on this robe that's, that has these, these patches, just like a rice field uh, does. There's large panels and short panels. The large panels are the wisdom panels. And we sew them to the short panels, which are the ignorance panels. 
Because for us in Zen, ignorance, delusion, our mistakes, all of that is included in enlightenment. Back to the chant of the Okesa. The Okesa frees people from greed and desire. It cuts off the five wrongs and helps you to hold correct practice. The robe is true armor, impenetrable as a diamond. A dragon who wears even a shred of the kashaya, that's what this is called, can't be devoured by a gold-winged Garuda. A person who holds a kashaya while crossing the ocean will not fear dragons, fish, or harmful beings. Lightning and thunder, heaven's wrath will not frighten a monk who wears the robe. When a lay person carries the robe with respect, no evil spirits draw near. When one arouse, arouses beginner's mind and leaves home and worldly affairs to practice the way, demon palaces in the ten directions will tremble. <laughs> so this was the robe that uh, priests, a woman priest named Joshin-san, uh, came to the United States in, uh, I think, the late 1970s, uh, 78 or 79, to teach Blanche Hartman, who was the first uh, abbess of San Francisco Zen Center, how to, make, how to make Buddhist rope. And Blanche was my sewing teacher. In, in uh, Zen, all phenomena is sacred. And our training in Zazen, which we've done together here this morning, in our meditation practice, our sitting practice, is to make con contact with all phenomena, which is sacred to us. And with Buddha's robe, when we are cutting up basically, you know, a perfectly good piece of material and then sewing it back together again, in so doing, we're trying to instill uh, in the robe these properties that the chant of the Okesa speaks of, and that we are making contact with in our zazen. So before I heard Mel Weitzman speak and he triggered my imagination, to me it was just kind of like this strange bib that people wore that was a little intimidating. I grew up in England, and robes to a working-class English boy are symbols of oppression. They have strong connection to the royal family and nothing personal anyone who loves the royal family i know how a lot of americans just love the royal family but to the working class much of, to to my sector of the working class robes and the royal family were were symbols of uh uh oppression and so it was it was kind of a negative thing this robe that i saw people wearing but now when I put it on, having practiced with it for so long, now when I put it on, uh, it's a reminder of me to make contact with all phenomena, past people, future people, and uh, all places and all things, because that's what my Zen practice is, is teaching me to do. It's reminding me when I put the robe on. I need a lot of reminders just because my karmic uh, 
responsibilities are many and uh, uh, um, I drift quite easily and so I, I constantly need a reminder so I need to hang around other people who are practicing Zen I need to go often to uh, a place where I can sit in a room with other people who are being trained in Zen training which is what's happening when we're sitting Zazen we're being trained we're being trained to let go of the passing changing constantly changing realities that we find and perceive in our minds and come back to our breath, come back to this phenomenon that we find ourselves in, come back to this ever-broadening awareness. Um, so I just, I need a lot of reminders and I need actually to be covered in this reminder. And when I'm wearing it, I begin to come close to what it is that it talks about in the... Uh, the chant of the Okesa, and me, you know, a former complete and utter and proud practicing skeptic. <laughs> We're in the, we are in the United States, I think you're all aware of that, and many of us are descended uh, from, uh, th those of us who are, are Caucasians are descended from European stock, and and, you know, we've gone through a long period of time where we've been able to really establish a European-based um, uh, power system here. But it's important for us to remember that many of those Europeans who are descendants uh, are, were fleeing Europe. So they were criminals, and this rings really true to me, <laughs> my my ancestors, I, I feel quite clear, were criminals of some kind um, and uh, were, were fleeing, you know, all kinds of difficulties and failed lives, failed economies, and many of them were, were fleeing, of course, uh, as we know, religious persecution. And one of the main, uh, um, one of the main uh, uh, ideologies that came, became dominant early on uh, for European uh, descendants in uh, this newly forming culture was Puritanism. And uh, I, th I think that uh, Puritanism, you know, really helped to develop what would become uh, our culture's only contribution to the school of philosophy, which is pragmatism, and actually helped to create what would become really the most successful form of, of, of capitalism on the planet, you know, incredibly successful capitalism, pragmatism uh, helped to build. It, it, it's about solving problems. It's about uh, making things work and then making them work better. And of course, you know, we connected that with being happy. And I think most of us know that uh, things working better is not necessarily uh, the way to happiness. Um, but this powerful dogmat or this powerful doctrine uh, uh, has in in injected itself into all levels of our lives, and you know, just like we have good, good you know, the best medicine here, and it's incredibly expensive, but we've got the best uh, medicine. We've got the you know the the most uh, efficient industry, uh, and uh, we also have 
the many other problems that it comes with. And the one that I really see in my sewing practice and as a sewing teacher at San Francisco Zen Center is this incredible, almost universal anxiety that we have about our lives. And for many of us, that's what leads us to come to Zen uh, to practice. And so it's heartbreaking to, you know, have people come who are coming to find some kind of spiritual depth coming to the sewing room and are very uh, anxious about having to sew these robes. What you do to, to uh, in our lineage, you guys use blues, blue robes in Cobancinos, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you come here. Uh, many of you know this. If you decide you like it, you come again. If you start coming on a regular basis, you might recognize someone who you want to start working with. Maybe you want to have Michael as your teacher, and he will work with you. And the way it's done at San Francisco Zen Center is you, you have to formally ask your teacher to become their student, and then you work, they, uh, work with you if you decide it's a good fit, and then you start study, studying the vows, the basic vows that we take, our bodhi, 16 bodhisattva vows, your basic, you know, no stealing, no lying, no cheating, no gossiping, um, uh, showing that you're willing to uh, take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. You study those for, you know, a year or so. At some point, your teacher says, okay, I want you to start sewing. And so you have to go to the sewing room and see me. And uh, people are, are very anxious about doing this, taking this leap, this jump. I joke sometimes, and it's only a partial joke, that um, a lot of people are, are adult survivors of, sewing, uh, of childhood sewing trauma. Um, because, uh, I, I, and I didn't realize that, that I am uh, until I started sewing. My mother died when I was very young, and we were th four children, and my father was an alcoholic, and living in England, where school uniforms had to be repaired. And, you know, I was, my older sister did it at first until she ran away from home. And then uh, it was my turn. I had to, like, repair the school uniforms. And I, I didn't know how. No one trained me how to do it. So as a result, uh, people would make fun of my little sisters and would make fun of, of me for poorly uh, repaired uh, uh, school uniforms. But I find there's many different stories some people have you know incredibly cruel grandmothers or mothers who uh, uh tried to get them to sew and were very critical of them it's amazing but anyway people come and um, they have these anxieties and they manifest in their sewing and you know uh they want to correct they want they would like to be able to correct their stitches and uh, so, you know, a lot of people will sew a stitch and, and uh, anxiety will want them to, uh, we, we teach people to stitch and get them to uh, um, uh, sew it as best as they can, as best as, as they can. And then we, you know, throw them in the deep end, basically, and ask them to start sewing and, and people will want to correct their stitches. And uh, I'm pretty sure that for Joshin-san, I've never heard anyone actually say this original teacher who brought it to uh, teach to Blanche Hartman, who then taught it to me. I never heard them say that she said this, but she didn't speak any English. Uh, it was amazing. Blanche didn't speak any Japanese. So she had to learn. Joshin-san would do something and then undo it and give it to Blanche, and Blanche would do it. And Joshin-san knew 
how to shake her head and say no, you know, and take it back and undo it again and, and do it again for her and show it. And in that way, she learned. And I, I just from hearing so many stories, uh, I'm pretty sure the way that Joshin-san thought about this uh, each stitch was that each stitch was sacred. And she didn't like people taking stitches out. There are other sewing teachers around the country, Zen sewing teachers, who do want you to take the stitch out. But uh, Joshin-san definitely did not want you to take the stitch out. And uh, I'll just close by uh, saying that, that I, that's how it is that I was trained. If there's a structural problem, we'll have you take it out. But um, Blanche was very reticent about taking stitches out simply because you didn't like them. This has to do with your preference and this has to do with how it is that we integrate our lives and our karmic responsibilities into uh, our Zen practice. And our Zen practice is constantly teaching us to look at things differently. And uh, I had this student who came once and he was very anxious and he considered himself to be someone who had no manual dexterity. And I taught him uh, uh, the stitch. And uh, having heard that many times, I wanted to see his stitch first before we decided whether or not he had manual dexterity. Because nine times out of ten, people who say that end up having beautiful stitches. So I taught him the stitch. I went off and, and dealt with other people. There's usually quite a few people in sewing class. And, you know, I left him for about 45 minutes or an hour. And I went back to him, and he had these stitches. And I kept them for a long time. I tried to find them recently, and I couldn't. Um, they're somewhere. But these stitches, really, on my first viewing them, the only way to, exp to describe them is... They were, they were the most violent stitches I had ever seen in my life. I mean, they were unbelievable. We, we asked people to stitch at a slight slant up and down, you know, stitch after stitch. And his were angled at all different angles. It was just brutal. And I was, he was continuing to sew as I was standing over and, and looking at him. And I could see how hard he was trying to do these stitches. And in essence, he was doing what I was, had taught him to do, to go in underneath the line and come out over the top of the line and go in underneath the line and come out over the top of the line. But what he was coming up with was so uh, irregular and... Um, uh, I, I, was, I was intrigued by them, and as I started to look at them, I realized that these stitches were possibly the most upright stitches that I had seen. They had the most integrity because he tried so hard to do them and wanted to do this thing so much, but he had left all of these stitches that I had previously seen as violent and ugly and had just kept trying to do it. And uh, they almost moved me to tears looking at these stitches. So we moved on, and he sewed his rakasu. And to this day, where's his rakasu? And one day you might see him with his rakasu on, and believe me, you'll know his rakasu. Don't say anything to him, okay? <laughs> and I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I hope we have got uh, just a little bit of time for um, questions. 
and uh, then I think we'll go to lunch. Is that correct? Yeah. Thank you very much for listening to me, uh, and we'll take a couple of questions, if you have any. Hi. Born here in the United States, so I, I just uh -huh. wonder the connection between the robes and the royal family. Uh -huh. It seems distant to me. I would think right. you would associate the robes with clergy, and maybe that would be traumatic. That that is and all of those things are connected with the royal family. So, the law, the clergy. Because the queen is the head of the church, the the, uh, the church there. So remember Henry the Eighth. Um, so uh, yeah, it's a automatic, complete, and thorough connection. Uh, the queen is the. You have to understand. They've been practicing this for 2,000 years, so just almost as long as the Buddha was around. Uh, so uh, the, the connection between the law and money and robes and ceremony and uh, the church uh, are, and art are all tied up with power and oppression and, um, yeah, the class system, which we have here, but... We like to pretend we don't. <laughs> yeah, I hope that answers it. Yeah. Yes. So I was wondering, is there any moment that um, that you either wear a robe or doesn't wear a robe, doesn't make any difference? I don't know, just two questions. One is, how do you feel that? Second is, um, is there any moment that doesn't matter anymore? Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, lots of moments when it doesn't matter anymore. Uh, and I can't say that I've ever put this robe on and thought, oh, wow, I really prof I, I profoundly experience emptiness right now. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's strange, you know. I, if, I don't know if you guys have been in here in the morning when we put our robes on, we put them on our heads. And we don't really know why we put them on our heads. Uh, we speculate sometimes, but Dogen, uh, our founder in Japan, he never said why we put them on our heads. He just said, I went to China, I studied, I, I went to the monastery, they put their robes on their heads, they did the robe chant, and I started crying. And I thought, I kind of, like I did with Mel, I thought, ah, oh, whatever, you know. But it was many many weeks, if not months, of being at Tassajara, for me at the monastery, 
when I realized that every morning when I put the robe on my head, I am deeply moved. I, 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 have, I have actually uh, cried a couple of times, but for the most part, all of these reminders, the robe, this architecture, this floor, us sitting like this, all of this is a reminder for me to try to get close to emptiness. Whether or not I'm actually there, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, and Michael might have a very different uh, set of answers for that. Well, I've heard it. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, when you put on these robes, you you when you put on these robes, you you disappear. And uh, I, li I like that very much. Um, uh, in a certain sense, like everyone who's dressed in a particular way, is dressing for their personal history. Or they're expressing themselves somehow. Um, but I know that uh, when, when, you, when you join a, like you were talking about school uniforms and uh, in the military too, they have uniforms, you know? And there's a sense of like your individuality is um, dissolved into this whole of uh, the army or the school or, uh, or whatever. Um, so I, I like that sense of you put on the ropes and you kind of, you're no longer expressing yourself as this unique person, but you're, you, you just, you basically disappear in the kind of wholeness mm -hmm. of it. So mm -hmm. I think that's an aspect Excellent. of the practice. Very good. Yeah. 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 But I mean, just experientially, I've, quite the opposite happened to me when I first got my robes. It was like, whoa, this is a big deal. I'm, you know, I've got this special clothing, you know? ah. and, uh, ah, ah, ah. and, uh, boy, did you learn, huh? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it was downhill from there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it was a good experience to kind of go through that, yeah. actually, and yeah. develop the kind of understanding of the selflessness of wearing these ropes, yeah. too, so. Do you have a... Do you have an experience like that? Uh, well, I was because I was a sewing teacher before I had my Ocasa, I knew what a problem it was uh, to wear them and uh, what a, uh, a clear uh, road to humility, you know. We, the black robes uh, at San Francisco Zen Senate, you are so clearly a novice priest for as long as you wear a black robe. Um, and that is a part of the hierarchy of Soto Zen, which I have come to really truly appreciate um, because you're allowed to make mistakes. I mean, it's a really, it's a big pain in the ass to wear this thing, you know. And if you're wearing it in a, out, like out here, sort of out in the wilderness where it's rainy and it's dirty and there's a lot of dust around and there's leaves, it's even more of a pain in the ass because we're, we're not just wearing one. We have to wear our whole geographic history. So this is from India, the Okesa. Underneath is my Karoma, which is Chinese from China. Uh, or no, my, uh, yes, uh, China. So it's it, from the Mandarin. Yeah, so, so it came from 
Buddhism went from India to China, and then under that is a, a kimono, which is Japanese. Um, and, and then my juban, this white one right here, is made in the United States. <laughs> so we actually wear our history on here. And, you know, it's, it, when it's cold, you're kind of sweating in here anyway. And when it's hot, of course, it's just really hot. And you've got this that is always falling down right here. Why not? You can use a safety pin. No, you can't use a safety pin. Um, you know, so the idea is to keep you humble. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, I think most of the time it, it works, you know. We're, we are patch-robed monks, so that is what we're supposed to be aware of as uh, uh, a uh, identity. Was there a question back there? Yeah. I think we've got time for one more. Uh -huh. You refer to um, hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Here, let's pass this back there. Uh -huh. So on, on the uh, mention of hierarchy in, within Soto Zen, mm -hmm. um, many of us, um, I believe, uh, I'll speak for myself, um, have a strong bias against hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And probably in your past, from your description, you might have shared in mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So it is, um, and incidentally, I am currently sewing my rakasu. But is it a? It is extremely challenging for me. This aspect of um, hierarchy associated with Buddhism. Can you help? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really difficult. It's really difficult. We are opposed. I mean, that's so many of the white uh, um, European settlers were fleeing hierarchy, you know. This idea of uh, an all... Uh, encompassing monarch you know it's deeply ingrained in us deeply ingrained in us to to move towards democracy um and so uh i would continue to encourage your skepticism and zen at the core of zen is to investigate 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 so continue to investigate your uh, skepticism and your bias against hierarchy as you enter into the hierarchy of Soto Zen. <laughs> and just like you will see with your relationship to each stitch, just like you see that your relationship to sewing in general and the concept of sewing, the idea of sewing, will change, so will your relationship to hierarchy change as you continue to investigate it. It's a beautiful thing to uh, feel strongly and have clearly defined biases that you can investigate 
in a safe way, deeply, all the way. Go all the way into it. We go all the way into our biases. Go all the way into them, and, and you will see what happens. This is not a prison. You're not going to be held here. Once you sow your rakasu and uh, receive the bodhisattva vows, there is no lightning bolt that is going to come down and strike you when you don't, don't successfully practice one of the uh, precepts that you're going to take publicly. This, it's not, it's not going to happen. We, we learn to be, uh, have a uh, mature relationship to purity, perfection, and impure, impurity, and imperfection by investigating our biases. It, it, we think that we have to let go of our biases or push them away or hide them. We want to hide them to be some kind of pure monk. And that's not the way for, for that has not been the way for me. The way for me is to be honest about my bias against hierarchy as I enter into hierarchy. <laughs> so keep up the good work. It's wonderful. I think we have to stop right now. Is that correct? Or do we have time for one more? We have time for one more. Oh, we do. Thank you very much. Yes, please. Uh-huh. I wanted to say I really appreciate your authenticity and your candidness and your metaphorically uh, hostile stitch. So, um, it was ugly. The ugly stitch, yeah. Ugly but, stitch, yeah. yeah. So, it could be hostile as well. I teach children, and they <laughs> uh-huh. make many such things with great intensity mm-hmm. and very authentic. And, and for me, uh, it's art, and uh, I see their art as uh, more beautiful than many or most adult art <laughs> because of partly what you said. But coming back to what keeps running around here is, to me, is uh, the form. It's really, I think what you're talking about is the form. Mm -hmm. So I've wrestled with the form, but I uh, find it a a refuge Mm -hmm. in this similar way as you're describing your robe. And there is a, I think, it's invisible. The robe is invisible finally, that we take this forms and what we learn from practicing the forms out of the zendo. That's the great greatness, I think, of practicing this. For example, Oriogi is, is so beautiful, so great, and it eventually, through this practice, I become, it becomes authentic to me. So I drop my chopsticks, <laughs> right? But then when I come and eat in a restaurant, it's not forgotten. I'm not doing oriyoki. Mm -hmm. My actual meals that I've had almost all my life with people becomes much more rich because of the practicing of the form. So that's what I thought I needed to uh, say. Thank you very much. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, Russ. Yes, please. Yeah. Since I just finished this, I thought I might uh, say a 
stuck when Doug said when I uh, well, when I asked about the precepts and he said well, you you know when when it came time he said you're going to go so I was like what's that got to do with the precepts anyway and then so I agreed to go to San Francisco uh, but I had been to the city center a couple of times and found it kind of intimidating and. And so then, you know, you start and, yeah, there's sort of this anxiousness of getting it right and things like that. But uh, part of what's nice about that sewing center is there's so many, well, there's a number of different teachers, like somebody comes from Monterey to teach. And, you know, people are uh, committed to helping the students. And um, you see, uh, say, like Rose had stopped for four years and starting up and, you see people starting their very beginning and and people finishing and you see the robes and somebody's got a you know a rakasu that's pretty beat up and he's trying to figure out how to repair it you know and i think one of the things i start i would say to myself it's just like oh these are just people and then also you start to see the sincerity but you know that somebody who is there for the first time it's like there there's a commitment to the to Buddhism or to their practice, and I think, I think that's uh, what sort of came through in the, in the in the going to the class is that y you just start to see that that when people come to the sewing center, it's it's that that there there's that that Buddhism or Zen means something to them, and that's sort of like their way of of deepening that, and 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 that in that way. It, uh, it it almost like just became just people, I guess. So, mm -hmm. anyway, good. Great. Well, thank you all very much. Thanks once again for having me here. And I just want to say uh, before we go that uh, thank you all for looking after this temple. Uh, this is a very, very special place. Blanche Hartman, uh, my sewing teacher, uh, Cobancino, who founded this place, was uh, very, very important uh, to her and to her practice. And um, so thank you for continuing to support uh, Jikoji and uh, working so hard uh, because it's rare to have a place like this. It really is. So thank you. Keep up the good work. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.